Hello and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. Hey, I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And uh, I, I am actually very heartened by a piece of entertainment news in this foggy state that I am in after <laughs> what felt like a million years at South by Southwest. Um, I uh, edited and we put up last night Tasha Robinson's review of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. And I have not seen this. I actually, you know, I'm I'm actually a little disappointed because of just how uniformly bad the reviews have been. I kind of want to see what could be the thing that sort of breaks the superhero bubble. Um, I don't know. I'm being a little bit optimistic there. But yeah, um, I don't think the superhero bubble breaks no matter how crap the films are until people just don't go see them. Right. I mean, it, but it used to be such a niche thing to be like, oh, yeah, well, this isn't going to be good, but I would just want to go and see, like, Superman's new outfit or whatever. Like, that was, like, that used to be such a niche part of culture, and now it's just, that's, like, the the writing mentality. But, anyway, it's the Zack, it's Zack Snyder's second DC film after Man of Steel, and... I don't know. Not not a big fan of Zack Snyder. Not a big fan of uh, of what he did with Watchmen, which is like oh god, you know, it was so bad. Yeah, one of those things I let through too in my in my general disinterest in, in superheroes. Of course, love Watchmen. It's great. Uh, probably one of the only like superhero comics I've actually read. To be fair, so I don't have a fug. <laughs> well, so what, the thing that was frustrating for me about Watchmen is that what was wonderful about the comic was that. Um, it really provided the superheroes from the point of view of the ordinary people rather than just having them as like props to kill or like be saved. Right. Um, and like that wasn't reflected in the movie at all. And I, you know, uh, yesterday I read the New York Times review of uh, Batman v Superman. And of course, it's, you know, about authority and all of the people are props to be killed or saved. And, you know, it's like the man learned nothing. <laughs> well, he wants to, you know what he wants to do next after he inevitably, you know, gets, I don't know if he'll get kicked off the franchise. He wants to adapt the Fountainhead. So let's let him do that it. That makes perfect sense. Doesn't let him adapt so the Fountainhead. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so I don't know. I, it'll be interesting to see if people get out to it because it feels like there's such a unanimous disinterested in it. And I know a lot of people left Man of Steel with a bad taste in their mouth. So. It maybe the this new DC run is like a non-starter. I don't know. It'll be well, interesting to see. I'm always hoping for that because, like, I feel like the recent Batman movies, the Christopher Nolan ones, made mm -hmm. superheroes a lot less fun. Like, I like Tim Burton Batman. So sue sure, me. yeah. You know, I, it's a cartoon. Let it be a cartoon. Let it be a visual live-action cartoon. There's nothing totally. wrong with that. Yeah. Um, so like this like gritty realism that isn't really gritty or realistic. Like just. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't like the new Batman movies at all. Well, the interesting thing to me, and again, I'm talking blindly because I've not seen this film, but one thing that everybody is saying is that Wonder Woman, um, played by, and I'm going to probably mispronounce her name, but I think it's Gal Gadot, uh, she's actually very refreshing in it because she doesn't have all this baggage that that he loads onto 
uh, Affleck and, and Superman, Batfleck and Superman just trying to make them like so deep and real and gritty and dealing with like these really deep philosophical issues because they're men and they think about these things and they have troubled face, troubled faces and, and, and grimacing and whatnot. Uh, you know, right, whereas we just in. have resting bitch face, right? Like we're yeah. not troubled. We're just right. bitchy. But she, I mean, she just drops in and she's just, you know, because they, she has not been done the honor, the perceived honor of being given all this grit and baggage. She ends up being like the most fun, pleasant part of the film and like the person you're rooting for the most, Yeah, um, which is like a weird, uh, I think, counterintuitive. We're so used to like men getting these characters these male characters getting overworked to death by these writers who think that like the problems of men are the most important thing in the world and they you know neglect in their eyes the female characters but it might actually result in better female characters who knows speaking (laughs) of female characters So, um, as you know, we've been call- we've been following Theranos for a while, and they've been in a little bit of trouble. You know, they um, they kind of have gotten some bad press. They haven't published any evidence that what their tests do works, and all they have is that one FDA approved assay, which is now the only thing they can currently sell. Um, so there's been like a thundercloud over Theranos, but that didn't stop Hillary Clinton from fundraising uh, with Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Um, last week, there was an invite sent out um, for a Hillary Clinton fundraiser, uh, and it was going to be hosted by Holmes, um, and, and Recode got a hold of it and published this. So they moved it, but they didn't get rid of her. They just moved it. Um, so there, we now have a photo of Chelsea Clinton hanging out with... Um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, at this fundraiser because, you know, like, here's what frustrates me. This is why I'm mad about it, okay? I wonder if it's the same reason I'm mad about it, but go uh, on. <laughs> it, maybe no. Um, Hillary Clinton has really been involved for a very long time, starting in the 90s, um, with healthcare reform and with the idea that, you know, we deserve better medicine, we deserve better healthcare, it should be cheaper. Like Obamacare in some ways is is sort of a retread of Hillary Care, which was like laughed off, you know, the congressional stage in the 90s for anybody who recalls. Um, and and which it did eventually get done as Obamacare. So this is like, you know, she's she's talking about, you know, how much health matters and then she is like partnering up with someone who doesn't believe in evidence-based medicine, who isn't providing evidence that her tests work, who isn't, you know, using the FDA framework for diagnostics and is instead using this lab-derived tests loophole. I just, it, like, there's something, I mean, listen, I, it's politics. I'm used to duplicity. But, like, oh, okay, this is really where you want to put your money? Like, this is, well, this is how you want to raise your money? I would say it's concerning as somebody who, you know, Hillary is probably going to get the nomination and then her full time job or at least, you know, her her campaign's full time job is going to be to just take down Trump like from an all out assault. So it's a little concerning that her team who, you know, will be doing this research and whatnot wouldn't have just like Googled Theranos to see what the the most recent news is about what they're up to. (laughs) Well, so, you know, what I think it is, is that you may remember that Henry Kissinger is a uh, former board member of Theranos. Oh. Um, Because remember, Theranos' board was packed with important political people, not with actual doctors. Right. So uh, Hillary Clinton is very proud of her friendship with Kissinger. 
Um, yeah. And like probably there are political connections there that people should be worried about because frankly Theranos bought a law in Arizona so that they could sell more tests without doctor's approval. They, this is a company that um, is not afraid to use its way to get regulations passed that will uh, benefit it. Uh, and as we're thinking about how to handle, you know, as the FDA is thinking about how to handle the lab-derived tests loophole, having a candidate who's in that tight with somebody who has a real stake in the game, like, makes me very nervous. Well, yeah, I, I, it just seemed like such a an unforced error on my end, but that, you know, yeah, if there is agreed. something darker there, then, <laughs> uh, then that would be... Uh, that would be reason for pause, but I don't know. Well, so tell me a little bit about the story that we've got going up on The Verge, I guess today, if you're listening yeah, it to this actually, on Friday. Yeah, we're recording on Thursday. This went up uh, about half an hour before we started recording. Oh, okay. Um, so do you know who J. Craig Venter is? Nope. Is that name? Okay. But so he was involved in the human genome, the original sequencing of the human genome. There were two teams, um, one of which was led by George Church and the other of which was led by him. Uh, Well, so he's also been trying to figure out how to do synthetic life. Um, And in 2010, he took the bacterial genome um, uh, of, of one organism, basically watermarked it, um, and then inserted it into another organism um, and, and made it function. (laughs) And, uh, that was a pretty big deal at the time, um, but people were a little skeptical. They were like, well, he didn't really build anything. He, I mean, they synthesized this genome themselves, but it is almost virtually the same as this original bacterial genome. So it's interesting. It's really a landmark technique, mm-hmm. but, you know, in and of itself, it's not really, it's not really synthetic life. Right. So they took this, this thing that they did in 2010. 2010, they started to try to, to knock genes out of it because they wanted to get to the, the minimum level of genes um, that, that support life. And they got there uh, in, in this, this uh, study that got published in Science on Thursday. Um, this, this bacterial genome contains only 473 genes, which is less than the smallest known naturally occurring bacterial organism. Um, couple of things. Uh, about a third of the genes in there they didn't realize were essential until the, they were trying to transplant things into cells and the cells kept dying. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and he used this really neat metaphor to describe that, which is, you know, if you have a 777, you're trying to deconstruct it to see how it flies, and you take the engine off the right wing, it'll still fly and land because there's an engine on the left wing, but it's not until you remove the engine from the left wing that you realize the right wing engine is essential. So... Right. Um, for this chunk of um, genes where we don't really know what they do, uh, this is a, a fairly important clue for starting to figure out, like, okay, these guys must matter for something. How? Do, how? What do they do? How do we, how do we experiment with them? Uh, how do we look at them? How do we think about what makes life? But the other piece of it, of course, is that it's a way of creating a human-like design of bacteria um, in that it's very minimal, that there's no duplications, that it is something that you can then play with and um, build around, um, which is not the way that, that nature <laughs> uh, handles things. They, they don't, they don't, nature does not do things the human way for some reason. I don't know so, why. So you mean bacteria, human-like bacteria, as in like the kind of bacteria that would be 
within humans that humans would produce? No, human-like as if if humans were to design bacteria by our usual design principles. Um, okay. You know, so things are minimal. You they're they're you know logically organized into modules. They you know, fit with a pattern. Um, it's a little bit less scattershot than the way that evolution works. Sure. Um, and so, you know, uh, wh- what this does is it, it, it does open a bunch of doors in terms of creating specialized bacteria uh, for industrial applications um, because this is so small and so minimal and you know exactly what's in it. Um, you can begin to think about, okay, where do we insert genes in order to, for instance, make this eat an oil slick? And you also, again, because it's so minimal, you know how to control it because it only can eat certain things because a lot of the backup genes have to do with, okay, how does the bacteria behave when it's hot? How does the bacteria behave when it's cold? How does the bacteria behave when it eats these things? How does it behave when so it eats those things? This is basically programming with genes. Yeah. Right. That's okay. Right. And like, um, it's... It's pretty exciting, um, but uh, it's, it's, you know, again, it's not ready for prime time. It's not like we're creating synthetic life from scratch. This was something that was whittled down from an existing bacteria, right? So, when, so what do you think would be the first application for it, you know, when it, whenever it is ready for prime time? Like, what, what, what's the rush in getting this developed so that we can use it for something? Well, so two things. Um, the first thing is to figure out what those genes that we don't know what they do <laughs> to figure out what they're up to in the cell. Um, right. That seems like something that Venter is really personally committed to, uh, based on the uh, press conference I heard yesterday. But uh, when you th- start to think about building life, you want to make sure that you know what's going on and that you don't have stuff that's going to interfere with the genes you want to put into the cell. And having something this minimal where we can characterize most of it might be helpful in terms of creating things with industrial applications that, for instance, can't survive outside of a specific lab-created environment, so they don't go into the wild, um, and that also aren't going to interfere with the genes that we insert to uh, to do whatever it is we want them to do. And so there are possibilities. Um, in the press conference, one of the things that they were talking about was, you know, totally novel antibiotics that are unlike anything else that has been created because we can sort of design a genome. Right. You're not using found bacteria. You are using your own engineered bacteria. Yeah. Um, And right now, the way that a lot of biotechnology drugs are made is it's uh, hamster uterine cells (laughs) that are programmed to um, make certain kinds of proteins. And it's kind of a wasteful process. So anything that could streamline that, um, including a cell that you would design that is just built to do that and not do anything else, would be very helpful and bring down... It would it wastes hamsters or uh, <laughs> what's uh-huh. being wasted? So the cells um, are going to go through all of their their cell mechanisms regardless, and they're also going to produce this protein. Uh, whereas you can imagine you could create a, a cell that would just produce this protein, and that's where it focuses all of its energy, and it's not performing side functions. Mm-hmm. So. The, there is a potential for, for instance, cheaper drugs um, 20, 30 years down the line. I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. So we can read about this on The Verge now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you wrote up the report, correct? I did, yeah. Because um, I, I, I wrote up the 2010 report as well. <laughs> so I was looking at this oh, and nice. I was like, boy, this is familiar. It's one of those weird things that happens when you've been in uh, a beat for a little while. Right. 
Um, um, well, I guess that's actually a perfect segue, being on a beat for a little while. Oh. So I, I, I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast. I know I've definitely talked about it with Chris Plant on What's Tech, but just about the... Um, how so many people that you now read on the internet these days probably got their start doing some kind of television coverage. Um, that was so. There was a big boom around 2009, 2010, kind of the rise of the recap, which is now. I it's still it's still going strong and it's still around. It's I don't think it's as many people's like bread and butter the way it used to be, but um, you know. That also, it was sort of a spawn, it was sort of a back and forth snowballing of TV recapping and covering television in a very micro-focused way, and television shows being created to uh, work to those that kind of coverage, uh, be appropriate for that kind of coverage. So, um, so you know, that's that's when we started having shows like you know, Breaking Bad and, and, uh, and Mad Men in its, in its way, just being very much built for the hyper detail oriented viewer. I actually, okay, so this is going to sound super weird. Uh, I stopped watching True Blood, but I kept reading some of the recaps uh, of it totally. that were up on Video Gum because yeah. the recaps were so funny. They were like an art form in and of themselves. Oh, I've totally done that. I did that. I feel like I did that with some seasons of Project Runway when I didn't have access to cable. I was like, well, I guess I, I'm going to just read some funny recaps of it uh, if I can't watch the actual show. I mean, it really became an art form, you know, not a very well-paying art form for most people, and as most people will, who have done it or still do it will tell you, but, um, you know, it's a lot, a lot of people cut their teeth, I think, coming up, myself included. Um, so there's this new and it's not news I only just realized it today when it was brought up to me by a, a fellow Verge staff member there won't be Game of Thrones screeners and I know this sounds like the uh the most tiny violin thing you could possibly imagine oh my god a bunch of journalists won't get DVDs of four episodes of Game of Thrones before the first episode premieres it's interesting though how much that has become an expectation for you know this little micro industry that's surrounded around covering television i particularly the way that i cover game of thrones it's very much advantageous to have several days with an episode because i'm going back and watching it three times to count like every single time somebody gets punched in the face or whatever oh, are we gonna do are we gonna do um game of thrones of thrones or game of game of thrones again? yes we yes. are you heard it here first it's coming back i'm trying to i'm working with some tools tbd to figure out a way in which it can be um, a little more of a streamlined process and not just me sitting with an excel sheet and tabulating like outfits and stuff <laughs> for those of you who didn't follow our coverage um i was the second place winner yeah of you our game of, game of thrones well, well, Liz used the amazing strategy of choosing an almost all-female team, and that really paid off. I, I, I admired that strategy before that season was underway, and then, you know, I was proven in my encouragement because uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, yeah, you, you had Cersei. I mean, even, yeah, we don't have to get too deep into the weeds about Game of Thrones itself. Suffice to say, Game of Thrones is, like, the kind of ultimate show 
that we're talking about when we talk about shows where people want to go and read or recap the next day and just like consume all this information and kind of have the experience that they had watching it confirmed by as many other voices as possible. That's sort of the the joy of reading a recap. I mean, I don't really read as many recaps anymore, but that's certainly the appeal of it is having a shared experience, even if you're not with a friend watching it on a couch or something. I mean, and and also like I I am watching RuPaul's Drag Race once again because RuPaul's oh Drag God. Race and Game of Thrones are like the two TV shows I watch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, and one of the joys of it is seeing people GIF uh, the moments that are the most fun and like seeing these sort of colorful you know moments replay right like and and you know thinking particularly with something like Game of Thrones, when you have an experience that's clearly different from what the screenwriter meant for you to experience, I'm thinking of yeah. uh, some of the rape scenes from last year. Um, just some of them. <laughs> just some of them. Not all of them, really. Um, not all no, rape. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding, though. I, I am only thinking of some of them. Um, it's helpful to have somebody else be like, you're not crazy. I also saw what you saw. It's like a little bit of like reinforcement yeah. to like the reader response version whatever the television version of reader response theory is yeah. i think the downside downside is it results in a very specific kind of television i think the bad end of it and this is a show that i don't watch but we cover week to week on the verge is the walking dead which is just like it's basically just a it's like an audience response gif generator machine at this point like it just does things to push buttons without too much regard i feel like and then you know i don't watch it anymore but this is what i get from reading recaps for a show that i don't watch is that you know there's not too much it's not respecting its audience even in the way that something like game of thrones does where it does things to deliberately provoke you but it's also in service of like this grander arc and like you feel as though your investment will probably get paid off where I feel like Walking Dead fans feel like their their investment has not paid off multiple times over. So I and and for those those who still watch it, I, I can't help you. I don't I don't I don't understand why. Well, I, that, get, that gets me back to sort of the relationship between television and its audience, which I am sort of perpetually fascinated by like the x-files was one of the first shows that was aware it had a fandom that the fandom was online and would occasionally throw bones to the fandom Mm -hmm. um and you can see it happening as as the x-files gets more popular every once in a while there's just a big wink for the obsessives or like a nudge you know here and there which is nice i you know like listen like every every genre has its fan service i don't yeah. care what genre it is including literary fiction there is yeah. there is fan service okay that's what all those james joyce references are so <laughs> um so fan service fine that that is a thing but what you're talking about in terms of that kind of you know alignment towards creating stuff for the recap yeah that almost seems to go too far. Like, there's nothing wrong with a, a wink or a nudge or acknowledging certain things that, that the audience has clearly picked up on and that the most obsessive fans are going to care about a lot. Like, hey, I see you there, obsessive fan. I like you. Yeah. Like, nothing wrong with that. But when you make the whole show that, it sort of undermines the show's artistic value. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's the television equivalent of doing something for the vine. Like, it's <laughs> it's just for that instant next morning response and a bunch of people going, oh, and a bunch of people putting throwing gifts up into their recaps. It's, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm also a fan of a bunch of reality shows that are not necessarily getting at some grand arc about the nature of of power or war or whatever like there, there's nothing too deep like that going on in Vanderpump Rules which is why I watch it um and and you know I also I mean RuPaul's Drag Race is similar actually like getting caught up with the season now and you know that is very much something where I enjoy my time watching it I will spend some time reading over some other people's thoughts about it the next day I don't know that I necessarily need somebody to process what happened on Game of Thrones for me anymore. I feel like, I don't know, I get that to a degree from Twitter while it's on. I, 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 but I don't, I spend so much time now doing my own reaction to it that I don't spend that much time reading other people's. But, but it, it's just interesting. I mean, I think the other half of this is just that we're kind of getting to this point where why should Game of Thrones send out screeners um, to critics? We're not talking about just to critics. Like, it, fans are going to watch it anyway. It's it's if one of the, if not the most popular shows on television. Um, they'll watch it illegally or legally. People will be watching it and talking about it. And so what real benefit is there to making sure that a critic has a copy of it to watch so that they can get their recap up at, uh, 10 p.m. as opposed to 9 a.m. the next morning. Like, this is very inside baseball and very inside journalism stuff, but, like, that's the difference that we're talking about here. That's that's the that's the net effect of, of, of HBO not sending out screeners for Game of Thrones, is that you will get recaps from, like, your favorite TV critic the next morning instead of right after the show's over. Well, so the other thing that I, I'm curious about because we sometimes and, and this happened when I reviewed the X-Files we'll get screeners that, that we then review before the show goes up sort of to tell people hey here's what's up with the show yeah um, and it's like something that I've been seeing going on a little bit in music as well where critics are getting um, albums especially surprise albums not looking at anybody but thinking about Beyonce uh, <laughs> at the same time as everybody else and you know there are, there are ways to do criticism that's slower that is considered that 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 lets you live with something for a little bit uh but i i wonder if if the screeners go if that kills off the recap yeah i mean i don't think it will i think people will just stay up all night to produce their content because such is the nature of the industry and we're in and we're really like teeing it up really well for our next segment i'm appreciating this but um i i just i i think that uh yeah no people will still do recaps because I think that it pays off in terms of traffic on websites and that's what all of this comes down to. But I mean, the music thing is interesting because I feel like music is something a lot more like video games and like on The Verge we've got a big game that came out recently that people have played and people are talking about but we still haven't done our review for it because you need a bunch of time to play a game to understand it and really understand what like the gameplay aspects of are it so that you can you can properly critique it and you're not there's not that kind of expectation around reviewing 
um, even films or or shows or shows is the word. I think I think TV suffers the most from the nature of reviewing and the nature of getting something out fast. But music too. I mean, I sometimes don't have my really good thoughts about an album until like four months after it's been out, and I've listened to it twenty times. And then suddenly I'm like, this is what this album is about. It's like too late. <laughs> Missed that boat to write like my brilliant review of it. So I, I don't know. It um I, I, I just think I, I am a little bit wary of an era in which nobody gives stuff like the, the, the idea of doing advanced copies or advanced screenings for critics is completely gone because it doesn't like it doesn't matter for the bottom line. Um for the the distributor for the label or for the the studio or whoever like they don't care what critics think because they're going to make their money no matter what yeah i mean that's part of it but also i think you and i are weirdos and that we care about criticism (laughs) 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 that we read critics that i i like i read critics who are reviewing things that happened before i was born you know what i mean like i literally go seek criticism i think it's important and valuable in a way of developing one's um, sense of style and understanding and engagement with art but obviously that's not the way everybody feels about it (laughs) well there's there's a i i I don't know that i'm going to read this book but i read a good review of this book which is like a total Russian nesting doll of criticism, but A.O. Scott, the the film critic at, at at New York Times, did a book um, on criticism called Better Living Through Criticism, I believe. Um, and there was an interesting review of this book in the New Yorker. So just like, uh, just I don't want to put this too uncouthly, but there's just a lot of like chin stroking. Let's just let's, say, let's just like, say it. Let's just call it what it was. It sounds like a media clusterfuck. <laughs> or, or I, I was gonna say circle jerk, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it's uh. It, it, it's funny because I, th- you know, one thing that I think S- Scott brings up in his book is that criticism at its best should be something that makes the medium better, whatever it is that you're talking about. And now there's like much more of an expectation that criticism is always going to be in opposition to the thing, um, and you know, a a, ch- a power check on whatever movie or a musician or something you're talking about. Um, and I feel like that's more of like the Yelp school of what a review is like, yeah, do this thing and people will either spend their money at it or not based on what you said. Or it can be something that's just like, here's how you can get more out of this experience that you may or may not have. A, a great movie review, you should be able to read and find interesting whether or not you see the movie. Like, I am of the firm belief, but not everybody is. So yeah, so I, um, I it's interesting. I, I just put up, I'm, I'm a judge in the morning news tournament of books this year. Uh, and I, I just put up my judgment last Friday um, where I was comparing, I'm going to mispronounce her name, I'm very sorry, Carolina Wachlawiak's The Invaders to um, uh, Paula Beattie's The Sellout, um, mm-hmm. which is really one of the funniest books I've read in years, and everybody should go pick it up. Um, and I was thinking about this because when you put two things head to head like that, you have to say why one thing is better at what it's doing, which is slightly different than the other thing is doing, and, and how you came to that judgment. And having that, those points of comparison can actually be very instructive as a writer, I hope also as a reader. Oh, um, for sure, yeah. And so I sometimes wonder if it would be, you know, more helpful for us to have movie reviews that are like, and here is this month's superhero movie review, you know what I mean? Where everything right. that is superhero-y gets reviewed. 
But I don't know. I don't I you know, there are a lot of different ways to approach criticism and have it be useful and and good. But again, like I sometimes wonder how interested audiences are in that. Yeah. I think I think the core of people who will read a review of a film not because they are or aren't going to see it, but just because they're interested in the writer or they're interested in the way that the the review has been framed from the headline, like that audience might be small. I don't know. But then, you know, we published something like Tasha's review, which I think is a perfect example of um, of talking about a, a film in in a way that is interesting is in a larger has larger ideas about how superhero movies work, and that is valuable. And you know, we see that a lot of people want to read that. Like you can even see that in the comments, like where people are actually. It's just incredible to post something about a superhero movie and have people be like pretty civil. Uh, it's great. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's a small contingent of readers that are interested in that. And sometimes I feel like it's they're out there if you find them. So I don't know. But the reason I, I keep bringing up this audience and I'm going to segue. <laughs> yeah, no, do it. Um, it's because as this is maybe something that if you don't work in journalism, you maybe don't realize. We think about our audience a lot and we think about what they like and what they don't like. And we do the things that we think are important, or at least... Uh, I, I can only speak for us as editors, but I, I know we do things that we think are important that don't necessarily have audiences. Um, but fundamentally, if you're writing on the web, you're usually selling advertising. Mm-hmm. And that is dependent on having page views, having people click on your stories. And uh, one of the most visible practitioners of this kind of page view journalism has been Gawker Media. Um, until very recently, they had what they called the big board up in their uh, newsroom with, um, you know, what posts were doing well and what posts they were doing poorly. Beat, or did they have their own kind of chart beat? I think it was chart beat. I'm, I'm not okay. totally sure. I've worked um, in an, have you ever worked in an audience or in an office that puts that up? A chart beat for people not in the media is a website that tracks in real time who's on your site and who's looking at each article and which articles are performing best. Right, and who's who's been on there the longest. I have never, ever worked in an office like that. That is, oh that is totally foreign to me. That was my first ever work experience, my first ever office work experience. Like, we had the big, the big board up. But anyway, continue, Gawker. So as probably you have all heard by now, um, Gawker was sued by Hulk Hogan for putting up a uh, sex tape um, of his that they had received in the mail, saying it was defamation. Gawker argued that there was uh, news value, uh, particularly because Hogan talks about his sex life in public interviews. And they went to court in Florida. Um, and a little, there's a little bit of convoluted legal backstory because Hogan initially tried to sue in federal court and when a couple of the rulings didn't look quite like they would go in its favor, he um, transferred the suit to this local court in Florida instead. And uh, while the jury was out deliberating, there was a big document dump of all of the things the judge hadn't allowed into the courtroom. And I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a First Amendment specialist, uh, but I, I do think that some of those might have changed the equation for the jury a little. But what was really astonishing to me um, was I think during jury selection, they must have been looking for people who didn't know what Gawker was, which... Um, is uh, going to create a a rather unique pool of jurors who are maybe not that familiar with the internet. (laughs) 
Um, I mean, I think you can be familiar with the internet and not necessarily care about what Gawker is doing. But I think you're definitely not a person who's particularly schooled on the way that media on the internet works now if you're not, if you don't know what Gawker is. And it was a little, it was a little stunning to me to have them explaining to this jury, you know, what Chartbeat was, what the big board was, and like why you would be chatting in in Campfire or in Slack or any of these other things that we use to communicate with each other and what the intent of that chat is and, you know, all of that stuff. And the tone also, like less, like much more ephemeral things, like the tone of a snarky New York media person and like what a snarky New York media person considers a joke and not, which ended up being something that came into the courtroom too. <laughs> and yeah. into the deposition. Yeah. Um, yeah, that culture clash was fascinating to me because I think, you know, especially it, the fact that it's Florida too is especially ripe with irony because yeah, well, of course it's Florida. Gawker made so much, so many bones off of their, uh, Florida man. Florida man coverage. Just like, you know, of course, like anybody else, uh, you know, fascinated by the latest insane sounding crime or happening in Florida. Um, that was a brand that Gawker ran with for a while. And, uh, and, and Florida man came back to get them in the shape of a jury. Yeah. I mean, the thing to keep in mind, I guess, is that most major First Amendment cases, the jury doesn't find in favor of the media organization. And like, so like I'm thinking of like the People versus Larry Flint or Jerry Falwell versus Larry Flint, um, which was a very famous case uh, that now, you know, there's a Courtney Love movie that was out in 1998, 1999, some, some point yeah. there where where she plays, um, <laughs> she plays Larry Flint's wife. Um in general, juries don't usually see things in the way that First Amendment lawyers see things. So a lot of times when First Amendment permissions, uh, when First Amendment cases occur, you the jury verdict doesn't mean a ton. <laughs> right. What was remarkable here was how much they rewarded they awarded in terms of damages. Yeah. Uh, um, Which is like, more than he asked for. Yeah. By a lot. <laughs> um, which I, I found a little shocking. But, you know, it's now going to appeal. Um, and I watched a lot of journalists freaking out about what this would mean for our First Amendment rights, for running with um, contentious contentious videos of unknown origin that nonetheless depict something newsworthy, and whether or not this was newsworthy, it was I, it was something I heard a lot of, and I realized from that that court talk how little I think how little most people understand about how. <laughs> how your journalism sausage gets made, how we decide what's newsworthy and like what's newsworthy to Gawker might not be newsworthy to the New Yorker, but it's still protected under First Amendment rights. You know, things like that. I mean, yeah, I just don't feel like this is going to have the impact on journalism at large, whether or not the appeal goes through that. I think people are making it out to. I think that there are very specific sites that would run with that story. Um, I I don't think that we would, even if it, that video existed uh, and we were given it. I don't think that we'd be like, oh my God, we've got this sex tape. Like, get it straight up on the site. I don't think that we would. I, and and I'm not saying that in a judgy way either. I just don't think it's for us. And I, no. I and I mean, our audience you know, doesn't really care. 
<laughs> yeah, and, and but I mean, I I don't with TMZ. I don't know. Um, TMZ is like I mean, there was a really fascinating article about TMZ in the New Yorker of about a month ago that kind of showed how that sausage worked, which is you know dealing in a lot of the same kind of stuff. So fascinating, just yeah. watching watching the deal making that occurs and like, which to me is totally normal, right? Like you, I, the, the Justin Bieber tape. Uh, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, that, where they I mean, they held publishing it so that they could get access. Yeah, and now he's just got the yeah. He had this like uh, kind of it was like low key blackmail with this tape. Um, yeah, no, I, I I think the thing for me that I keep coming back to in all of this, it because I mean I don't want to out like judge people who work at a publication because of this one case within it. But I just, I think that Gawker sticks to this story a lot and Denton sticks to this story a lot of like, well, celebrities are different than other people. And what a celebrity does is not necessarily as private as things that other people, like regular civilians do. I think for a company that is as savvy about how the internet works, and I, I mean, knows how to kind of follow the curve in a lot of ways that a lot of other places don't. I think it's very disingenuous to pretend like there is a distinct wall between what is a celebrity and what isn't. Um, Especially as you see all these niche celebrities rising up through the internet. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would consider Nick Denton a celebrity. Um, A lot of people would consider, like, I don't know, somebody who blogs at Jezebel as a celebrity. Or would like walk up to the, them in the street or follow the, you know, I think once you're any kind of person who has people that you don't know following you on social media um, and and aware of you as a personality, it, the line becomes very, very blurry. I mean, maybe we're celebrities. We might be celebrities. <laughs> like, and, I, I have know. seen a lot of science reporters referring to things as metal as hell lately. I see you all. <laughs> I know where that's coming from. But I, so I, I just think to say that that this is fair game because Hogan is a celebrity and like none of this is out of particular love or sympathy for Hulk Hogan. I mean, it, this is one of these like everybody here is garbage type cases. <laughs> everybody behaved poorly, you know, and, and a lot of the news value was supposedly because there was another tape where he said some some he had some racial epithets or said some really nasty racist stuff. Um, but I just don't think that saying, well, he talks about his sex life, therefore anything having to do with his sex life is something that, like, I don't know. I think that's something that a Gawker writer doesn't want to go, a road a Gawker writer would not want to go down, because if you ever have written about your own sex life for Gawker, then, like, that argument applies to you, too. (laughs) Like, And people do it a lot. That's, I mean, people do that a lot at Vice and a lot at Gawker and a lot of, you know, a lot of people... You're talking about people, how people came up. Yes, a lot of people came up writing nerdy TV recaps. A lot of people came up writing personal essays for Vice or Exo Jane or something. Like, that's a lot of people's stock and trade. And, like, yeah. to suddenly say, well, that makes anything having to do with your sex life fair game is uh, it's a very slippery slope. Well, the, th- the other thing that I want to bring up, though, that I noticed was that the argument being made by Hogan's attorneys, essentially, was that Gawker did it for the clicks. <laughs> <laughs> and when you take into consideration how much traffic matters to them, the way that they've historically approached it, you can see why an ordinary audience of people 
would would find that a damning argument. Yeah. And that worries me in a way because (laughs) the thing about journalism that nobody likes to remember is that the reason why your web journalism is free is because there are ads on the site that are paying for it. And the reason why your subscription to the New York Times is discounted as low as it is is because there are ads in the New York Times that pay for it. And, you know, A.J. Liebling, the famous uh, press critic for The New Yorker, uh, once wrote that the freedom of the press is limited to those who own one, which I think is absolutely true. Uh, but, you know, if, if if the problem is, if your argument is that the news judgment was that they did it for the clicks, that's a general indictment of every news organization. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So... It, it, it's sort of funny. I mean, we get a lot at The Verge when people say that we have clickbait headlines or something. It's like, well... We want people to read the thing that we did. <laughs> That's right. Like, like the headline is advertising for the story. I'm surprised you haven't figured that out yet. Like I don't think that there's anything disingenuous about that. It's our job and it is actually has a direct impact on, you know, we're not reading newspapers. You're not buying the whole site and then reading it and it doesn't matter what stuff you read versus what you don't. You read specific things because they call out to you in some way or another. And um, yeah. Yeah. And we're standing here with megaphones, you know, extra, extra, read all about it. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that that is a very realistic part of the job. So I don't know. I, um, I, I yeah, I, I don't feel like either way this goes, this has an impact on any other site but Gawker. I just, I just don't. I don't think... I think also if this had been a similar situation, but it had not been a sex tape, nobody would be calling them out on it. Nobody no. would like when when Deadspin does some amazing scoop based story on an athlete like the Manti Teo thing or something like nobody's calling foul about that because it's interesting and it's like a genuinely good, you know, cultural report. I, I think, you know, the fact that. It's one of those, it's like, it's like the porn thing, you know, you know, journalistic value when you see it. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's messy. It's really messy. That's, uh, that's the thing about, I mean, to me, that's the real thing about First Amendment cases is that they don't happen when it's clear that there's news value, right? Yeah. You don't get sued when it's obvious you have news value. You get sued when it's murky. And so, of course, this case is going to be a little bit murky. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, we that about does it for us this week. Um, I hope you've um, bared through our, our inside baseball session here. <laughs> Sorry to talk about journalism. I apologize. I think we've lost our it's entire just, audience. <laughs> it's just that not. I, I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what audience there is for it. But you, the interesting thing to me is that I was in Austin while a lot of the stuff was happening, and and staying in a hotel where they were playing, uh, you know, Good, Good Morning America, and by the breakfast bar, and. Uh, and this was a story that they were running with every day. They were doing updates on it each day. Um, you know, it's on the front page of New York Post and stuff. I mean, maybe less, a little more predictable because it's New York. But still, it is a pretty weedsy media story. It just happens to involve Hulk Hogan and a blog that a lot of people don't like. So And a sex tape. Like, all of those things together just, like, gives yeah. you a perfect storm of schadenfreude. And, like, there, just, just to be extremely clear, like, early Gawker was very important to me as a baby journalist. Oh, so, same, same. you know, I'm 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 not coming from a place of hating Gawker, even though there are times where I don't really agree with the decisions the site makes. But yeah, ugh. I think when they do good, they they do good. And uh, when they do bad, they do very, very, very bad. 
<laughs> so that's 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 it. That's <laughs> we just good figured story. it out. That's our that's yeah. our good thing. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for sticking with us. Yeah, and um, be sure to subscribe to Verge ESP on iTunes if you have not already, and give us a rating, throw us some stars. Um, you can also listen to us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Verge ESP, and you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Emily Oshida, and I'm at Ms. Lopato, M.S. Lopato. And that does it for us this week. We'll be back next. Or wait, you're on vacation next week. So we no, no, no. Back I'll be back week. next week, and then and then and like then off the next and week. then off the week after that. But okay. don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't 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 worry about it. It's not it's not it's not your problem, you guys. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see you back here next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.